Well, hey, good morning, Miles City family. So glad that you made it today. And uh, we're going to continue in our series here, Mark on Rewind. And we're going to be in chapter 10. And I was thinking, well, because we're going to be in chapter 10 and thinking it's Mama's Day today, maybe we could just do a little bit of a top 10 of famous one-liners that mamas have said. So ladies and gentlemen, here is the top 10 famous one-liners that mamas have said. Gentlemen, the top 10 famous one-liners given by mamas. But to help me out, we have the one and only JPS, the Japanese Paul Schaefer here with us this morning. Let's give it up for the one. Travis, <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. You know, I know you are, Maki. You are so glad to be here. JPS in the house. Are you ready for the top 10? Oh, yeah. You okay. ready? I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. I hope you're ready, too, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Number 10, here we go, of the top 10 things mamas have said. Famous one-liners. Number 10, silence is golden. Unless you have kids, then silence is suspicious. Ooh. Isn't that the truth, Maki? So true. So true, Maki. Scary true. So true, so true. <laughs> number nine, number nine. Licked a dark smear off my finger and then thought, phew, it's chocolate. I've done, done that before. <laughs> you've, you've made that mistake before? I did, yeah. Okay, wow, why don't, why don't you explain a little bit more about that, Maki? Uh, let's just move on. Uh, are you sure? Okay, <laughs> moving on, moving on. Number eight. I don't want to sleep like a baby. I want to sleep like my husband. Oh, I think you hit that one too close to home, Travis. <laughs> uh, we'll talk to Sonny about that one. Okay, number seven. Spit up is my new favorite. No outfit is complete without it. Vince Vaughn. I'm going to do it too. I'm going to do it too. Just, just makes it feels oh, yeah. un 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 unsettling. Like, right? Oh, okay. Number six. I hate when I'm waiting for mom to cook dinner and then remember, shoot, I'm the mom who has to cook dinner. Where the meatloaf? Where the meatloaf? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maki. Well, you ready for number five? Oh, yeah. Okay, number five, number five. When your children are teenagers, it's important to have a dog so that someone in the house is happy to see you. Wait, is that why you and Jen got a dog last year? Whatever, Maki. Whatever, <laughs> Maki. Whatever. All right, number four. Number four. When Lionel Richie wrote Easy Like Sunday Morning, he obviously did not have kids. Oh, oh, oh easy, easy Like Sunday, Sunday morning. morning. Oh, nothing like a good Lionel song, right? Yeah. Okay, number three. When my kids act up in public, I like to yell, wait till I tell your mom and pretend they're not mine. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> Who are these kids? Okay, anyways, number two, number two. You know you're a mom when your idea of world peace would be everything having a drive Where Well, I'll have uh, two french fries and one burger, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and ladies and gentlemen, the number one famous one-liners that moms have said. Here we go. Number one. You ready, Maki? Yes. Number one, parenting is one obstacle after another, literally, because no one ever puts anything away. And ladies oh. and gentlemen, that is your top ten famous <laughs> one-liners given by moms.
Now, speaking of one-liners, listen, moms, we love you. We're so grateful for you. We're all that you did, putting up with all of our stuff, always being there for us. But speaking of one-liners, what we're going to be looking at today are the, some really uh, amazing one-liners that Jesus talks about and brings up kind of like stop you in your track statements in Mark chapter 10. And our hope is that we're going to look at these one-liners in such a way that will kind of uh, pause us and make us step back and do some personal inventory. Because time and time again, I, I see it all the time in, in, in my life, that when I do what Jesus tells me to do, when I go his way, my life is just better. Now notice, I didn't say easier. I said better. There's more peace. There's more joy, more contentment, no matter what circumstance that I face in my life. And so before we rewind back to Mark chapter 10, I just want to pray for you and then pray for me and then we'll dive in. So Father, thank you for getting us here today to, to, to hear your truth, to hear from your word. God, just pop your words off the pages, these amazing statements, and may it hit us right where it needs to hit us today. Control my pace and my energy as I talk and give this message. And I pray this in the power of your son's name, Jesus. Amen. So, hey, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want you to open it up to the book of Mark chapter 10. We're going to get right, just cut right to the chase. We've got a lot to cover here and just a little bit of time here. But what we're going to see is we're going to highlight four different types of people that Jesus highlights. And the first one that we'll see is that he's going to be highlighting the married ones. And so Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. I hope you're ready. Wherever you're at, just say, I'm ready. Here we go. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. And Pharisees came up in an order to test him. Now here's the thing. We see this time and time again where the Pharisees would test Jesus over and over and over again, trying to trick him, provoke him, trap him, get him off base, get him angry. They would do this. One of the simple reasons why they were doing this is they were jealous of Jesus. The Pharisees were losing their popularity. They were losing their authority while Jesus and the crowds and the masses were flocking him like no other. And so they said, all right, we're, we're going to trick him and trap him with a question about marriage and about divorce that was highly contested back in that day and is still contested here in our day to day. Here's, here's, here's the question that they said to him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. This was referring back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which stated that if a wife was unclean or displeasing to the husband, that he at any point could write a certificate of divorce. 
And so back then there would be this debate of what was actually meaning, what was the meaning of what was the definition of uncleanliness or displeasing. And so as time went on, people interpreted that themselves. And so if a wife burnt a meal or didn't shower or didn't do what he wanted to do at that certain time or wasn't ready in a certain time, he would write a certificate of divorce to his wife. And so there was the liberal view of thinking, and then there was the conservative way of thinking uh, of what would be deemed valid for divorce. And which one back then do you think was more popular, the narrow way or the broader way? I think you know what the answer is. And so here's how Jesus responds. He says this, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. That's why God wrote you that commandment, because your hearts were so hardened. But from the beginning of creation, so Jesus is basically saying, let's go all the way back to the beginning. From the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus shocks everyone that was listening with this one-liner statement that's saying that a man and a woman that come together, that two shall become one flesh, reminding us that God's view of marriage is intimate and that God's view of marriage is permanent, blended into one. The Greek word for hold fast here in this verse is this word called proskolao. Proskolao, which means to be joined together or to be glued together. And you know, super glue is an amazing invention, right? And so I super glued these two pieces of paper together. And once you super glue something together, once it's tightened and joint and glued together, it's very difficult to separate it. Now, can you separate it? Yes, you can. But if you start to separate it, it gets to be very, very, very messy. This is a reminder to us that divorce, this is a word from God speaking to us, that our creator, he wants the best for us. He wants the best for us and that divorce is not the way. Divorce is not the easy way out because as many of you maybe have experienced, it always leaves a trail of mess. And so if you have the D word like swirling around in your mind, divorce, if that is in your vocabulary, hear from God. He's saying today, he's reminding us today that divorce is not the way. Divorce is not the easy way out. It's always will leave a trail of mess. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've heard commentators say it like this, that the only one who ever profits from divorce are attorneys. And so let this again be a reminder that it's important to not give up and to fight for our marriages. It's worth it. It's worth it. It is worth it. So Jesus shocks everyone with this one liner. And then, you know, you start to ask yourself these situations based on divorce. Well, what about this scenario? Or what about that scenario? Or what if I've already been divorced? Then what do I do? And I'm, I knew you would ask those questions, but you're not the only one who asked those questions. His disciples were curious and wanted more information as well. And so here's where it continues in, in the passage. It says that they went back to the house and the disciples asked him again about this matter. They wanted more information. They wanted to dig into this matter. And he said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus just kind of like lays it out there pretty like black and white that um, adultery takes place when divorce happens, when it's not done properly. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Uh, The scriptures don't cover every single scenario. And so sometimes God's word is silent on some specific situations of divorce that I've encountered. And so what I've experienced through my journey is that people have to be very, very intentional and Holy Spirit discernment convicting led when it comes to the application of divorce in their scenario. And also it's very important to understand that, that grace and forgiveness is, 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 is available and it's offered if you have had a divorce, but we never want to lead with grace and forgiveness is on the other side and then just take divorce lightly. But here's what we know for sure in Scripture about what God says about divorce. We're reminded in Romans chapter 7 that marriage is broken when death occurs. And so till death do us part, but after a spouse passes away that you are free to remarry. We're also seeing Matthew chapter 5, if a spouse is unfaithful because of sexual immorality, the other spouse has the right and the freedom to divorce and then remarry. And then also we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if there is an unbelieving spouse in the marriage, one that does not have a relationship with Jesus, and that person wishes to leave the marriage, the believer that is left in the marriage is no longer bound, and that spouse has the freedom to move on and to live in peace. This is what we can be sure of in those specific scenarios. But when I think about this this context. And when I think about this in the light of the resurrection, I wonder how many marriages back then in the first century were saved. I mean, I think about the people that were hearing Jesus say these things. And when they first heard him, they were like, yeah, whatever. Or they just kind of brushed it off and they were about to get a divorce. But then when they started to hear that Jesus rose from the dead, or when they actually saw Jesus with their own eyes, I wonder if it finally stuck to them. And I wonder how many marriages in the first century were actually saved in light of the resurrection. And I wonder how many marriages all the way up until now that have been saved because of the power of the resurrection working in and through marriages. Some of you are are literally living proof of that who are listening today. And I wonder even now, today, as you're hearing this, that maybe some are thinking and have been pondering divorce. I wonder even now if the power of the resurrection would pause you to not file and then to instead lean in to try to save your marriage. And so Jesus not only talks about the married ones, but then he talks to us about the little ones, the little ones. We see in verse 13, here's what he says. He says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, it says that he was indignant. He was frustrated. He was angry and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Here we see Jesus reminding his disciples and reminding the parents that were surrounding him that children are a blessing, not a burden. Children are a blessing, not a burden. And I know some of you are like, well, it depends on the day. You know, I'll never forget the day when I went up into my youngest son's room and I saw this. 
And let's just say this time it wasn't chocolate, if you know what I mean. Okay, let's go ahead and take that off the screen. <laughs> but seriously, children are a blessing, not a burden. And in that culture, and that context, that wasn't a shocking one-liner statement given by Jesus. When they would hear that statement, when they would hear that type of thinking, they, they, would, they would agree with that. They, they would embrace that. That was just a natural thought. But here we are in our context, in our world, in the United States of America, and I think if we're honest, we know that there's a huge uh, view and value where this isn't the case, where children are looked at as a burden, not a blessing, where they're literally looked at as an inconvenience, where they're getting in the way of my hopes and my dreams and my plans, and, and that they're just literally like a big inconvenience or just like a tax deduction, if you will. This week, uh, in the media, we've seen uh, this potential uh, opportunity where we could see one of the biggest, if not in my lifetime, the greatest political shifts we've ever seen with the Supreme Court potentially overturning Roe versus Wade. And, you know, when you think about all the millions of children that have been killed since the 1973 ruling, it's estimated over 63 million babies have been murdered, have been killed. And, and when we know that over the last few years, that number has been, that yearly number has been declining, but it's still over, almost over a half a million babies have been aborted even in this past year. Now, I know that this topic can become insensitive or it can become political. But I, I just want to be clear that here at Mile City, it's really not an issue for us. It's a black and white issue where um, we believe that abortion is not of God. It is wrong and that the scriptures are very clear that God has formed us in our mother's womb and that life begins at the moment of conception. But what is sensitive to me personally is when I think about those that have gone through with abortion, when I think about the women that have gone through with abortion or the men that have encouraged abortion and the guilt and the shame and the prison that you continually walk through day in and day out, year in and year out because of the decision that you made. And I want you to, if you don't hear anything, please hear this so clearly. First John 1, 9, God's word, that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and he is just to cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. For those who are in Christ, there is no guilt. There is no con condemnation. You can be freed. And so I pray that you will receive that information, that you'll receive that good news and be freed and be healed from that prison of guilt that you have been walking through. So what a huge win, potentially, for the next generation for life. Now, one other thought on this. I don't want to belittle all the hard work that people have done to fight, to advocate, to be the voice for the unborn. But now, if this actually happens, the big C church, we have to fight more than ever to be the voices for those that will be born. Because I imagine that orphanages are going to begin to be jammed. I imagine that the need for adoption is going to skyrocket even more. And so we as the church have to do our part. Each of us have to do our little part to help. As James 1 reminds us that we as Jesus followers are to be ones that care 
for the widows and for the orphans. Children are a blessing, not a burden. I love this quote by Andy Stanley so much that we've made signs of it. We've, we've sent it out in mailers as magnets to put on your fridges if you have kids in Kids City. This, that your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something that you do, but someone who you raise. To raise them to know how much God loves them and wants a real relationship. And I started to think, I wonder in light of the resurrection that the parents, that now that they've heard that Jesus truly was God and that he rose from the dead, I wonder how many parents went back to this moment thinking, oh my goodness, my kids got to be so close to Jesus. My kids actually got to sit on the lap of Jesus and he laughed with them and he played with them. And I wonder strategically in light of the resurrection if that literally uh, jacked them up with even more motivation to be strategics to keep showing them how their kids could be close to Jesus. Which then reminds me in light of the power of the resurrection how important it is for me and how important it is for you as parents to be strategic and doing whatever we can do to get our kids close to Jesus. To be reminded of the responsibility that we have for the next generation and the next generation to show them the ways of Jesus. We are partnering with God to train them up in the ways of God. That's why Kids City, Kids City uh, on a regular basis and student drive nights on a regular basis are so important for us. So. We've talked about divorce. We've talked about abortion. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Okay, hopefully we're going to get a little, little bit lighter now. So he talked about the married ones. He talked about uh, the little ones. And now we're going to see him talk about the rich ones. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says this. And as he was setting out on his journey, it says that a man ran up. And this man was a young man. He was a successful man and he was a rich man. And he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This man in his ignorance was putting Jesus on the same level with every other teacher, not realizing really who he was talking to. And this was not Jesus denying his deity by any means. This was him affirming his deity by questioning the young man who was trying to impress Jesus. So Jesus answers him by listing six of the Ten Commandments. Here's what he says. You know the commandments. Do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, this is what, he, this is what the young rich, this young boy says, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, and I, I mean, if I was in that situation, I would look at that young rich ruler man and say, well, aren't you special? I mean, aren't you just one special, perfect, you know, person? But what's so amazing is that we see and are reminded how God uses the law like a mirror for our lives. So many times God uses the laws to show us our flaws that even rhymes. God uses the laws to show us our flaws, to show us where we've fallen short, to show us where we are in need of salvation. But sometimes we can look at the law and we can look in the mirror and it's like we've got a blindfold on and we think it doesn't really affect us. But in God's great love for us, he goes the extra mile to continually pursue us and to show us where our hearts need to be shifted 
in case, and in this case, we see that this man needed to be shifted when it came to his wealth. And so here's what Jesus says. He says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. And so here's what he tells me to do. I want you to go and I want you to sell all that you have and I want you to give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But here's the response. One of the saddest things we see in scripture here. It's a very sad passage. It says, disheartened by this saying, it says that he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It's a sad scene in the text. This shows us that this man wanted salvation, but he wanted it on his terms, reminding us that wealth can rob us of the greatest treasure, Jesus. Wealth can rob us of a great treasure, heaven. How money can actually make us poor. Money can be a tremendous servant, but it's always a terrible master. Money can be a tremendous servant, but always a terrible master. Jesus was exposing the real heart of this young man, and it literally stopped him in his tracks. And then Jesus continues to talk to his disciples about this moment. He says, look, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. They were, they were, they were, this was a confusing statement back then because when you think about a camel and the eye of a needle, let's put it up here. I mean, this is kind of like, okay, this, he was using a hyperbole to exaggerate a situation, but it's a real situation and there's no kind of like moving around and or trying to like context this thing away. He's saying, look at those who are rich, it's gonna be difficult because they depend so much on their wealth. They depend so much on their achievement, on their possessions, that they don't depend on God and they never get to that point. And this was astonishing to the disciples because back into their culture, if you had more money and you were able to give more, then you were blessed more and then you, you were able to be deemed as more righteous and that, okay, so then you have more money, so then you give more, so then you're more righteous. And literally Jesus just puts a, just a complete, just throws that thinking right out the water and says, Mm-mm, that is not the way. He kills this type of thinking. And here's what Jesus says in response. He says, or, or they say, well, then who can be saved then? Because in their context, it was like, okay, well, rich people, I guess, are closer to heaven because they can make more, you know, sacrifices or alms to God. And he's like, no, 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 no. So Jesus looks at him and says, this is, this is the truth. With man, it is impossible to be saved, but not with God. For all things are possible with God, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This kind of blew their minds because the first, the elite, the rich, they just assumed. But he was reminding them that the rich, because they're so persuaded and distracted by their wealth, will actually come in last in the end, not first. How easy is it for us, come on, to be distracted by success, to be distracted by our money, to be distracted by the American dream, to keep us from truly giving our full surrendered hearts to Jesus, our full dependence on him instead of our own achievements. Now, this is not saying that we can't own money. It's not saying that we can't own money, but it is saying that you shouldn't have money own you. It's not saying that you can't own money, but you shouldn't have money own you. Have you allowed your wealth to get in the way of following Jesus? Have you allowed your success and your American dream to get into the way of surrendering and following Jesus?
I wonder. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just wonder. I, I would hope you would think. I don't know. But I wonder in light of the resurrection, what happened to this rich young ruler? Did he ever get to the point? Did the word ever reach his ear? Did he ever get a look at the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes? Did he ever get to the point where he finally let go of his wealth and grab onto Jesus in light of the resurrection? We'll never know. We'll never know. So, last group of people he talks about. We see him talking about the married ones, the little ones, the rich ones. And now we're going to see him talk about the great ones, the great ones. Verse 35, it says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Sound familiar? You ever do that? Just, hey, Jesus, I need you to do this. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. Can you do this for me? Can you do this for me? I do it all the time. They were, it's like a genie in the bottle. They just wanted him to do whatever he wanted. And so Jesus says to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus gets this response and he sees what they're asking. And then he responds to them. He's like, you guys have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea what you guys are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They didn't know at the moment what he was talking about and the extent of the cup and the baptism of suffering that Jesus was about to go through on the cross. Jesus later in the text, or continues in the text, to tell them that they actually would go through something similar and experience the cup of suffering. And as we'll see later in their lives, James would be the first disciple to be martyred, and John would be exiled on the island of Patmos in suffering. And I've got to imagine, in the light of the resurrection, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, I wonder if John and James went back and rewinded to this moment and realized, oh, that's what he meant by drinking of the cup. And I wonder if it made them also think, oh my goodness, what does that actually mean for us and what are we going to have to go through? And so then Jesus continues and he says this in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's saying that's how they view greatness. But let me tell you how greatness should be viewed. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. Jesus says, you want to be great in the eyes of God? Then become a servant. Flip the hierarchy triangle right, up, down, right upside on its head, reminding us that great men and women bear lesser men and women on their backs. If you want to be great, Jesus teaches that we must learn to have a servanthood mindset. If you want to be great, we must have a servanthood attitude. And it's, I don't think by accident that today's Mother's Day, and I can't think of a better example than all you moms out there who constantly love and put us first. And what's also interesting is that we know that the same uh, account is told in the book of Matthew, but there's an added detail to the story that's not here in Mark. That when, that when James and John gave this request, they didn't give the request to Jesus. It was actually their mama who gave the request to Jesus. Showing, again, how their mom was putting James and John first. That she wasn't thinking about her seat. She was just thinking about her boy's seat. And was more concerned about their position than her own position. She was willing to sacrifice her seat for their seat. 
giving, just giving so much over and over again. And I just, I just think, you know, I just, of all the examples I have in my life, I mean, I, I think of my wife, Jen, and the way that she is a mother and the way that she, I don't know how she does what she does half the time, you know, serving all these different people and then serving our children and then serving me as like three full-time jobs, you know. Um, it's, it's just, it's unbelievable. I'm so thankful for Jen and, and that servanthood model that she just models to my family and to myself. I think about my mom. I was trying to think about a time where I could remember where my mom was selfish and put her needs before someone else's needs. And I thought about it for a week to give an example and I couldn't find one. I could not find an example where my mom was just all about just needing to like, you know, have her needs met and push everyone else out of the way. She's always constantly putting everyone else's needs first as a servant. Talk about a great one. Talk about a great one. That's, that's my mama. And so, again, moms, we're so grateful for the model that you are to generations upon generations of showing us what Jesus looks like by modeling what it means to be a servant. We're so, so grateful. And so where might you in your life need to maybe get off your high horse and lower your pride to be a servant? Where, where do you feel like you're entitled, where you need to maybe lay down your entitlement at the feet of Jesus and be a servant for your life? Last verse, last verse. We see in verse 45, it says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, moms are a great example of servanthood, but there's no greater example than Jesus who left his throne, who left his reign, came from heaven to earth to willingly sacrifice his life to serve us and not to be served. Why? Why did Jesus need to come down and serve us and serve you? Because we are so desperately in need of him serving us. We are so desperately in need because of our sin. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus served us. That's why he washed his disciples' disgusting feet and then died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we can't pay ourselves, only Jesus can. And then he conquered death and rose from the dead, proving that he truly was God. And the scriptures say that all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. What is keeping you from calling on the name of Jesus? What is keeping you from lowering your pride and allowing Jesus to serve you? Maybe you feel like you're not worthy to be served. Maybe because of a past divorce or a past abortion or whatever it is or something that you just feel like no one could ever forgive. I want to remind you again that Jesus has the power, he's the only one who has the power to forgive you and to clean you and to redeem you. Let him do it. He's chasing you, 
He's pursuing you. That thing that you're feeling right now is his spirit getting your attention. And so if you've never received Jesus, if you've never allowed the greatest servant of all to serve you, then let this be the moment. Let this be the time. And so wherever you're listening, I just invite you to just close your eyes, bow your head, maybe even put your hands just open and just say, Father, here I am. Thank you for modeling servanthood to me. Thank you for dying for me. I have had a hard time leaning in to wanting to receive your forgiveness, but today I receive it. I humbly receive your forgiveness for my sin and for my past. Thank you for dying for me. Tell him that. Thank you for rising again for me. Tell him that. Right now, I receive you, Jesus, to be the king of my life. Right now, I receive you, Jesus, to be the king of my life. I am your servant. Tell him that. I am your servant now. You're my king. As we continue to pray, my friend, if you truly meant that, it's so clear. The truth is just, it's all over in the Bible that because of your faith in Jesus, he is the way that you will no longer perish apart from him, but you will now have everlasting life and you will get to be with the great one, the great servant, the great ruler of all when you leave this earth. Father, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much for your word. May it hit us where it needs to hit us. We love you and we pray this in the power of your son's name. Amen. If you made a decision to put your faith in Jesus and receive his forgiveness today, I want to challenge you to tell someone. I don't know where you're watching. I don't know where you're at. If you're in Michigan or if you're somewhere else, please tell someone, tell a friend, tell a parent, tell a spouse, let them know what God has done in your life or let us know. Just text the word Mile City uh, to, or to 94,000 and we would just love to celebrate with you and then help guide you to help you keep moving towards God.